So, Evan, dearest, if you may, would you please tell us what... <laughs> well, of course, Joe. I, I must uh, thank you for your inquiry and respond in kind. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for Sunday, December 15th. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan, uh, what are we doing here? Well, Joe, we are going to discuss topics shocking coming to a podcast to listen to discussion but we're gonna make sure that all of our takes and opinions are in good faith and as always adequately informed yeah we, we uh, come from a place where we know that we are human we don't know everything we are not wholly informed are we on the ivory tower try- no we're not on the ivory tower which also, 10th episode special, I reveal that I actually stole that from another podcast. What? Yeah. Aw, oh, damn it. It just felt right. We can't go on. It's it's from a podcast called Why? Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life by Jack Russell Weinstein, a philosophy professor at the University of South Dakota. <laughs> well, at least you've so. given him the plug now. Yeah, go check him out. I've been listening to him for years. But don't listen to him instead of us. But anyway, 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 anyway. Evan, start us off. What do you want to talk about this week? Well, Joe, I want to talk about film comedies. But I don't want to just go on sort of a more subjective discussion of what I find funny, comedies I like. And I'm not even going to try to go on an old fogey rant like oh things were so much better but i want to try to engage in a more objective analysis of market trends and what i believe is responsible for some of them does that sound good that's that's adequately acceptable to me all right that's that's our standard adequate So film comedies used to be big box office draws, critical sensations, and popular favorites. But that seems to be becoming the case less and less. I did a little bit of research, and I found that it is true that big comedy hits are harder and harder to find at the box office. So my analysis was looking at the number of straight comedies that ended the year in the top 10 of the global box office, but I excluded family comedies because those have been pretty stable over time. Stuff like Disney and Pixar, that's not really what we're talking about here, but just normal live-action adult comedies that don't have another really clearly defined associated genre. And what so I you're found, just, yeah. So you're just fit, picking the data to fit your result. I mean, I'm t- sort of, but, but also <laughs> that's the whole point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm analyzing the this specific type of film, so I think it's I think it's germane to the argumentation yes, to pick this. Yeah, it's completely rational. I I just I thought it was funny. Yeah, it but is anyway, funny. Go ahead, go. But uh, uh, yeah, no. Sometimes we got to expose the other not good faith arguments. I get it. I get it. I'm here with you. Yeah. Yeah. And my analysis uncovered that in the decade from the year 2000 to 2009, nine comedies were able to break into the top 10 of their year's global box office. So that's not 90% of all films, but nine out of the possible 100 films 
10 per year makes sense. But Mm -hmm. this most recent decade, only two, two films alone were able to catapult into the year end top 10 global box Hmm. office. And Hmm. what were they? So the first one was The Hangover 2, which came out in 2011. And then in 2017, Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle are the only two live action, more adult or at least adult appealing, if not specifically adult oriented comedies that have broken into the top 10 of a global box office for the year really, this Ju- decade. Jumanji was that big? It was. There was a couple of things. One was the nostalgia factor. And the other thing that really helped was that it was in theaters forever. It premiered in December of 2017. And it was still in theaters in, like, I want to say April. So it had a huge chunk of time to accumulate dollars. Mm-hmm. No limited run there. No, <laughs> very much not so. But but what's the takeaway, Evan? Yeah, so we're finding that not only is it harder for comedies to have these really big, broad successes like we've seen in years past, but also comedies are generating less money all throughout the sliding scale of different ways to evaluate comedy. Even besides the top end, we're not seeing comedies gross as much, and studios are releasing fewer and fewer comedies. But why is this? Joe, do you have any theories you want to toss out? Uh, you know, I, in some ways it feels like movies aren't an exclusive place to go get comedy. Um, There's so many good comedi- comedic TV shows that come out on a regular basis. There's plenty of comedy, uh, you know, like stand-up specials. Those have been real big on Netflix and in, quote, the culture. That's Internet videos have also been big. But then also, I feel like in the last few years that it almost seems like like as much as comedians want to decry that there are now all these rules about comedy and you can't say anything... You can really pretty much do anything, and it almost seems like in the comedy movie arena, that almost seems like a hindrance. So, who knows? Yeah, and I think that that actually hits on a lot of good points that tell sort of part of the picture, and I want to come back to some of that later. And then I also think that you're absolutely right in saying that some people might attribute it to this rise in PC culture and that we're just killing comedies these days. I mean, director Todd Phillips said as much, and I think he is absolutely wrong. Um, And I think that the rise of streaming and other forms of comedy being available tells part of the story but not the entirety of it, because you can still, in addition to being able to find comedic TV shows, you can find dramatic TV shows, you can find action TV shows, and yet comedies are being hurt more than any other type of film. And so here's why I think that is. Comedy is inherently participatory. It's one thing to hear a joke or to see a comedic performance and to register that it's funny, but it is a much more appealing and powerful emotional draw to actually engage in laughter 
or especially to be in a group of people who are all sharing this comedic experience. And that is what's going away as theater viewership declines. And to really quickly recap what we're talking about when we talk about the decline in theater viewership, it's actually been trending downward for a long time. Theater viewership in the United States peaked in 1930, had a lull then in the worst depression years, had another uptick around 1943 through the end of the war, and there's been a steady decline ever since, but it's become acutely bad recently. Theater attendance hit a 25-year low in 2017, and then 2018 saw a small rebound, partially, and this is my own speculation here, but I think partially due to movie pass and this push to get people back into the theaters. Box office trends since 2000 show that per capita theater attendance is down almost 30% from the years 2000 to 2018. And I think that comedies get hurt the worst. You can watch a drama in a theater and accounting for video and audio quality, it's going to be pretty much the same experience of watching that at your home. And so you are not going to feel as though you're missing anything and you're going to continue Mm -hmm. to perceive dramas as good and rewarding when you do go to the theaters and see them. But if theaters are being more poorly attended, that means that audiences are going to be scarcer. So when you do go to the movie theater to watch a comedy and nobody's laughing, even if the film is objectively funny, it's not going to feel as funny if it's not getting laughs. That's sort of our implicit barometer for how successful and good a comedy is. If people in your theater aren't laughing, you're probably going to think that the comedy is worse than if it had been a theater full of people laughing. I think of some of my favorite experiences have been watching movies like Borat or 21 Jump Street or The Big Lebowski and big groups of people. And I think they're objectively funny, sure, but being able to be around other people and understanding what they think is funny and having a sort of shared experience is what really makes them special. And so if people are already going to the theater less, when you do go to see a comedy in the theater, the experience is not as rewarding, which creates a vicious cycle of perceiving the comedies as declining in quality, which therefore hurts the box office, hurts future audiences, which makes it less likely to have a good experience within the comedic viewership and so on and so on. I mean, that could be something, but it, I think it seems like now with the internet and comedy and its wide availability it seems like there is the possibility that people's taste in comedy has become niche and they know how to you know satisfy it on a more personal level and aren't seeking to go see big broad comedies in the box office or uh, in the theater not causing small box office returns like i i'm i'm looking at a list of the top comedies that came out this year 
And for the most part, I haven't heard of most of these. And I haven't heard, like, critical praise for most of them either. So maybe there's just a gap in advertising or, uh, you know, discourse about it. Or we all just kind of know where we want to get our funnies and we're not all going to the same movies to go see it in a more generalizable way. I do appreciate that. And I think there's definitely part of it. But again, I think that it's true that we all know how to find content that we respond well to on our own and don't need to go to the theater for it. But that doesn't explain why comedies are being uniquely hurt because we all we can all find our own dramas our own actions our own content in general that we like and yet it's really comedies that are accelerating their downward trajectory faster than the rest of the film industry well i you know we can all find our own dramas but i think with comedy there you know we love the shared experience but i think we there may be some social, I don't know if I want to call it embarrassment, but kind of privacy about it. You know, with maybe within your immediate group of friends, there are things that you find funny and you talk about them with them. And, you know, you have a shared experience of finding them both as funny. But for a lot of people, going to the movies is a uh, social endeavor. They go with someone. They go to see something together. And... If you don't can't both agree that you both, you know, think the movie's funny or or there is a fear that maybe if you go, you both won't find it funny, then that could be a scenario where uh, you people don't want to enter into that, where I think with dramas, there's a higher possibility that both sides can agree that, you know, this could be on the merits, something good, even if they don't both end up agreeing to it, there is no shame in one liking it over the other. So you just think that there's more of a stigma associated with admitting you like a comedy that someone else doesn't like? I think there is. A lot of people, like comedy, at at least in our generation, almost seems to speak to who you are and you know what you know your shared sense of values are and for a lot of people if they they don't want to be found out to like something you know think something's really funny when someone else thinks it's completely trivial or mundane and obvious or uh, half-hearted or just you know not smart so there is definitely a fear of liking something when someone else thinks it's bad. That's interesting. I guess that the people who I watch movies with and typically discuss movies with, we we all just are are so brash and cocksure in our opinions that we don't really we're not really afraid of of disappointing someone else. We we like the the conflict of of trying to tease out what we responded to or didn't respond to. But uh, that's certainly not everyone, I suppose. Like, if I were to really like whatever stupid Adam Sandler movie came out on Netflix, I would be pretty scared to share that opinion with my friends for fear of ridicule because there is the uh, pervasive idea that 
Adam Sandler is just, you know, most of his movies are just phoned in, not funny, and are just kind of generally silly to begin with. So I think for a lot of people, there's a fear of social shame or outcast by liking a comedy that their the rest of their group does not that isn't the case with dramas i don't know i like going to the mat for movies that i like no matter what yeah not everybody's like that guilty pleasures are are a thing Um, a lot of people don't like to admit that they watch uh, whatever reality tv show because of the ideas that it's trashy low quality not you know not smart not something that's worthwhile to be defending and i feel like that also happens in the world of comedy well that's certainly valid i do want to tease out something that you you had said earlier that i've i've sort of refuted but i want to give the full weight to it because there is a lot of validity in it and that's the idea that we can get comedy in a variety of places. And actually, the film scholar Jeff King agrees with you immensely, Joe, so much to the point where he doesn't believe that comedy should even be classified as a genre, but rather as a mode. And I think that certain films really do adhere to specific comedic genres, and I think that the term does have value within genre theory. But... King makes a very interesting claim about modes. A mode is a type of feel or tone that a movie strikes. And so if we're going to operate under King's concept that film, uh, that comedy is a mode as opposed to a genre, and we look at the two films that were successful this decade, The Hangover and... Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle, we would say that Jumanji is an action-adventure film with a comedic mode, whereas The Hangover Part 2 is, oh man, I don't know how you would classify it. Uh, An adventure? Adventure, mystery, (laughs) also... A little noir, a little little adventure. Yeah, so a blend of genres, and then ultimately with a comedic mode. And this kind of explains... A lot of what's going on at the same time that straight comedies are failing at the box office, the movies that are really successful are incorporating more intentional comedy. That's why you have Poe Dameron doing his tight five at the beginning of the most recent Star Wars films. It's why you've got everyone in the Avengers going on and on about Captain America's ass. It's it's trying to appeal to that comedic sensibility within films that are not predominantly comedic. Well, now as a thought exercise, I want someone to make the hangover, but not in the comedy mode. (laughs) Yeah, just make it a very serious, yeah. Like, oh man, what happened? What did happen? This is not funny at all, guys. We blacked the fuck out. Yeah, exactly. What happened? Um, Tell the same narrative, but without attempting to garner laughs. But yeah, I like this. I like this uh, Jeff King guy. I too like my comedy a la mode. <laughs> ah. Also, since comedy is very personal, and again, we can get it wherever we want. One feature that I really like about consuming comedy on my own 
within the confines of my own apartment is that if I don't like it, I can bail out whenever. So if I'm like, this ain't really, this really ain't doing it for me. I can just be like, okay, I'll stop watching this. Whereas if I go to a movie theater and I don't like something, it's like, uh, I paid for the movie. I'm here. Got to watch it. Kind of locked in. Might as well see it for the whole thing. So again, I would dispute that that is a unique problem to comedies, but I, I still understand the, the experience. Because when a comedy is bad, for the most part, this is, I mean, what I at least think a little bit more uniquely to comedy is that when it's bad, you get the cringe factor where it just feels bad to your bones. Like, oh, this is this is really not good for a drama to induce that feeling. It has to be really, really bad. But a comedy can traverse into that territory a little easier than I would think a drama would be able to. I don't know. I guess I haven't found that to be my experience. Um, I mostly, maybe it's a recency bias, but the last horrible movie I watched was Peterloo, which was just this botched historical epic drama. And it was just absolutely horrible. And there's nothing comedic about it, but it's my lowest rated movie of 2019. So did you see that in theaters? No, I saw it here at, at my house. Ah, see, you were able to bail. Yeah, but I didn't. That's that's you. Yeah, it's all on you. Yeah, that's the Evan way. It is. You gotta, you gotta at least see the thing so you can say why you didn't like it, or you cannot, and not have to talk about it. But you like to talk about movies, so I can see why you stick through it. I do. I do like movies. Shocker, everyone. I like movies. I'm sorry that you're all rocked to your core by this. Evan, you have been outed. (laughs) So, Joe. Yes, Evan. What do you want to talk about? Oh, Evan, Evan. I want to talk about conservatism, a word that gets thrown around a lot, like liberal. And it is sometimes as not as descriptive as the word liberal is. So this is just kind of a kind of just throwing it all against the wall. Some ideas that I've had percolating um, in the, in my mind for a little while now. Uh, Most of this is spawned by a lot of work by the reporter named Jane Coaston at Vox. She has by far the best reporting and work on conservatism as a movement, as a faction, as a as a lineage of thought that that anybody has done, or at least I've seen. So I'm not super deep in the literature, but her work has been really good. And she just recently put out a piece that I'll link in the in the show notes. But it's essentially about how there is a growing divide in the conservative movement in the United States over pornography, where there is a social conservative faction that believes that powers it's in the social good that the powers of state should 
move to limit more obscene and hardcore pornography, which are very, very, very loosely and undefined terms. And there's also the pushback within the conservative movement that's saying, oh, it's personal choice. Why should we be part of that? And what what I've been ruminating on for a while now is I feel like, at least in my mind, most of conservatism can be boiled down to now this is not this is not republicanism or whatever partyism or center rightism or this is uniquely conservatism and i believe conservatism innately is a fear that there's a possibility that the wrong people will be power or disgust currently that the wrong people are in power. So in the pornography case, there is a disgust that the people of the pornography industry have any sort of cultural power. They are the wrong people to have any sort of power in the sexuality game in these people's view. If they were to choose someone who would be the right people in power, it'd be more like something like priests or community leaders or whatever puritanical, uh, you know, religious slant that they want to go on with that. But this isn't unique to, to the pornography debate. This is this seems to be something that conservatism has had from the beginning. It's a movement that's inherently reactionary. The first conservative was Sir Edmund Burke, and he his main gripe was it came about when the United Kingdom was moving from you know a monarchy based aristocracy where a bunch of people who were in power because they had always their families had been in power and Edmund Burke believed that you know, these are the people who should be in power. But, and then even conceded that through a democracy, through elections, that maybe even better people, more qualified people could be in power. But there's also the chance that less qualified people would become powerful because uh, the people voted them in. And it seems like this through line comes through with a myriad of conservative movements. Libertarians are part of the conservative faction. Their fear is that anyone in the government is the wrong people in power. There are the racial conservatives of the Barry Goldwater ilk who believe that anyone, any minority or sympathetic to minority causes are the wrong people in power. Um, there's the hatred of Hollywood that is quite prevalent in the conservative movement. And they are, they have a disgust that the people of Hollywood have that cultural power, except for the people who are conservative in Hollywood. But, but those are the right people, so they're fine with it. And then there was like the hatred of Obama of the conservative movement. When Obama was elected, Mitch McConnell gave a speech on the Senate floor where he said the number one objective of the Republican Party 
was to make Barack Obama a one-term president. And that just doesn't happen with liberalism. You know, liberals and um, Democrats, they sure hate Donald Trump. But they did not, you know, the leaders of the party did not go out onto the halls of Congress and say, our objective is to make Donald Trump a one-term president. At least not the legislative leaders. Yes, not the legislative leaders. They did not come out and make that express, you know, expressly say that. And they have tried to work with Donald Trump on building legislation where the Republicans actively said, no, we're just not going to work with Obama on legislation. They wanted to get him out of there. There was a disgust in him being president. He was the wrong people. Whereas Democrats, you know, even if they very much believe Trump is the wrong person, will still work with him on legislation if they agree with it. I mean, there has been work on the NAFTA replacement that's still going on, even as Trump is facing impeachment. So this is just a general thought that it seems like what defines conservatism is a disgust that the wrong people may or are in power. When I think of conservatism, I always think that the the principal defining factor of conservatism is I would maybe not phrase it as the fear of the wrong people being in power, but fear of the status quo changing. There is the idea that and and to be conservative you have to have this underlying belief that things are mostly fine that we are safe and secure in the status quo and change threatens that status quo and could lead to a compromising of that safe existence Now, obviously, if you are someone in a marginalized group or someone who doesn't have that pre-existing level of safety, you're not going to be conservative and you're not going to see the world as safe and you're not going to see the need to preserve that status quo. I'm saying status quo a ton, so I'm going to stop. Mm -hmm. But that to me is what unifies all of the different things that conservatives oppose. They oppose the pornography because it challenges what is acceptable in regards to sexual mores. They don't like other liberal policy proposals or progressive policy proposals because they seek to change what already is. You're absolutely right that the conservative movement is reactionary. They don't want to change things to something new. They want to revert to old ways. And obviously I have a lot of disagreements with this at every stage, but charitably it is born out of an idea that the past and the present offer security, which should be preserved. Yes, and but it often seems like this, the, the want to go back always rears its head when 
the wrong people are in power. So like when conservatives, like, you know, one of the big knocks on uh, conservatives is that, um, you know, they, they do things that are like hypocritical, like run up huge deficits when they, when the, and then when the Democrats come into office, they, all they care about is deficits. And like in the tax cut example, you know, that's government action. It's going against the status quo, what it's been. And it's not even really going, I mean, unless you want to go back to like the mid 19th century, that's what this tax regime is going back towards. But it's all about they, you know, the, the modern incantation is that everyone, the federal government is the wrong people in power. We need to give a tax cut to the wealthiest because they're the right people who should be in power, who should have that money, who should have the power that that money wields. Because if it's given to the federal government, they might give it to the others, the minorities, the poor, the undeserving in their eyes. And they are willing to further legislation that makes it possible or uh, gives it to whoever they believe is the right people. Um, like if a Republican or a conservative, at least in the United States, is working on any legislation in regards to voting rights, it's in order to restrict them because there is a belief. Maybe it's just pure um, working the demographics for elections or it's a sincerely held belief that they're just making sure that only the right people can vote in elections. White people with means who can take off work for election, be educated on the issues, can have a driver's license present when they go to vote. So it, it seeing it through the lens of trying to make sure that the right people are power and that the wrong people aren't in power makes the the hypocrisies that liberals like to point out about conservative conservative action make more sense, at least through my eyes. Well, uh, two points of response. Point one is that I think it's fair to question whether some of these actions that you describe, such as tax cuts or voting rights, if those are truly born out of conservative ideals or if they speak to levels of corruption. Because I think what, what anyone in power is going to be subservient to beyond their own ideology is perpetuating that power. And then my second response is that to the extent that we haven't seen these types of tax cuts for years and years, it still is adhering to the idea that the right people to be in power are the people who have always been in power, that the rich white people have provided a sense of security in their mindset, and that's why it should be preserved. They're the right people. But why They're are the they people on their side. why are they the right people? You see, and that that's one thing I can't explain. There's just kind of a like a, a wink and a nod and like in, in liberal circles, 
if you're if you're going to be claimed to be part of the liberal movement, you have to go and express your dear your fealty to the people at every step. Like if you're a person running for president, you have to go ensure every minority, the African American community, the Latino community, the the LGBTQ. Uh, I messed that up. LGBTQ community that you're on their side. You have to go talk to the poor people and all you know the unions, and you have to go and ensure that you're on their side. With conservatism, there's just kind of a like looking back and forth at each other and it's like, okay, we got this. We're on your side. You don't have to go to every part of the community to say full throatedly at all times that I'm here for you. I'm doing this. There's just kind of this weird trust that once you're kind of in the movement, you're a part of the movement and it's trusted that you're going to follow through on what the ideals of the movement are. Well, that's what I propose is that missing ingredient as to who the right people in power are. The right people in power to that mindset is the type of person who's always been in power. Yeah. And that 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 is definitely part of it. I mean, with Edmund Burke, essentially the right people in power were the people who were in power. There were fear that new people coming into power could be the wrong people to be in power. And there was a disgust at it. Man, disgust is just a huge part of the cons- you know conservative mu- movement. Um, that just seems to be part of it. Whereas the the liberal igniting philosophy is mostly we can make a better world through small changes. That's that's uh, those are my thoughts on conservatism. Maybe someday I could research it more and flesh it out more. So, who knows? We'll get there someday. Yeah, go do some research. We love research. Everybody, go go book. Go book. So, Evan, what's our uh, big main topic dealio today? Well, Joe, this week we want to tease apart ideas of education funding, charter schools, all that and more this week on Adequately Informed. Check us out wherever you get your podcasts. Which is hopefully here as you're listening. Non sequitur. All right. Education. (laughs) See, the genre is podcast and specifically political. The mode is non sequitur. And the mode is comedic through the technique of non sequitur. Uh huh. Break this shit down. All right, we're spending our valuable minutes on this. So this came from a another question by our good friend and listener Dylan, who sent us a big email with a bunch of topics. He asks, "Charter schools. Why do people like them? Do they work in specific cases? Why aren't we giving way more money to public schools?" And yeah, these are topics that I, I don't know about you, Evan, but in the past, I have definitely tried to get to the bottom of this, especially charter schools. Yeah, my Um, fiance works in public schools, so education and educational funding is is very much on my mind. Hot topic. Um, It's what it's what the people think about. 
So, Evan, you told me you watched a bunch of videos and read about charter schools today. What are your takeaways? Yeah, so essentially, for those who don't know, I'm not sure that I even had a completely full understanding, but a charter school is sort of an autonomous hybrid school that is public. Anyone can go. They don't typically have admissions requirements and they're not allowed to charge tuition, but they are not run by U.S. government or local municipality entities. They are run independently and who runs them is often a source of contention. But the idea is that if you want to go to a charter school, depending on how popular this charter school is, you either just get to go and you get to choose to go there or you enter some sort of a lottery system to get in. And what happens is that the money that would be going to fund your local boundary school gets siphoned off to pay for part of the charter school. But often this isn't enough to pay for the entire operations of charter schools. So they also rely heavily on philanthropy and grants and stuff of that nature. Yeah. Like if you ever hear about the idea of school vouchers, charter schools are very much part of the school voucher uh, policy arena. They're, they're essentially the same issue. (laughs) Yeah. School. That's a good point. School vouchers would be like a, a coupon for an amount of money from the federal government that you could choose to spend on a charter school instead of your local public school. Yeah. So basically charter in, at least in the United States and other countries who do this, there are essentially three types of schools. There are the public schools, which we all know, you know, they're funded by the government, uh, local, normally local new municipalities, but you know, sometimes it's different. Then there are private schools, which are schools that are completely separate from the government. I mean, for the most part, Um, they get all their money on their own. The government isn't in part funding the education of these people. I went to a private Catholic school for K through eight, and that was a private school. You have to be admitted. You have to and you have to pay for the whole sum of it. The government doesn't give kickbacks. So charter schools are an amalgamation of the two. They are, like Evan said, you know, they are they act like public schools. They accept whoever. But then also the government gives that, you know, is giving people like a voucher to say, hey, you can either go to public school or you can go to a charter school of your choosing and we'll pay out that money to the charter school if you choose to use it. Now, one part that a little bit differs from your definition, Evan, is that the the rules on charter schools differ from place to place. So some charter schools can ask for the the voucher that comes from the government, the money of that. And they can also, in some jurisdictions, charge tuition if they want. That's supposed to be kind of the appeal of charter school is that. At least from like an economist perspective, it's like, oh, well, people can pay the amount 
that they want to for education. And if people are willing to pay more for education, then they have an outlet to do that with the use of the public money that they're already spending or giving the government. Because one of the gripes private school people are always like, it's like, well, I pay my I pay my taxes and I'm not getting any free education out of it. I want my tax money back. And it's like, well, you chose. But anyway, so besides that, uh, they're, they, charter schools are contentious, Evan, aren't they? They sure are. Why are they contentious? Well, there are some people who believe very strongly in charter schools. And to answer Dylan's question, yes, there are some cases where charter schools can work very effectively. Essentially, the idea of charter schools started as a progressive concept to allow different bodies with vested interests in students to control the education without going through the bureaucracy of the government. It was conceived as a way for communities or nonprofit groups to step up gain a charter, and find innovative ways to run a school that would be better for students. And there are certain charter schools that adhere to these original philosophical tent poles that do very well. Uh, a big benefit of charter schools is that they often open in low-income areas. And most studies show that charter schools often serve more low-income students than the average public school. Some municipalities rely extraordinarily on charter schools. Actually, the city of New Orleans has greater than 60% of their public school-aged children attending charter schools. So more children are in charter schools in New Orleans than in traditional public or private schools. And there are some great success stories. Unfortunately, there are a lot of other issues that arise. And it mostly, to my mind, comes when you try to introduce profit motives into the equation. Because education is, in, I mean, as we have come to understand, it is almost inherently a public good. It is not a private good. There is, you know, if you seek profit for it, that does not necessarily make the product better or yes. incentivize the bettering of the product. I said, you know, it's good for consumer goods because you can buy a consumer good and be like, oh, I have this and I can assess the, the value and the ups and downs of it. But for something like education, <laughs> it's hard to evaluate a good education. And and if. Um, People are cutting corners to make money, then there's long term downstream effects that it that buying a bad phone don't have. <laughs> yeah, we can actually understand this through the lens of something called Baumol's cost disease, which is a principle which states that any type of product or service that can't be automated is bound to go up in price. Essentially, since we can't effectively have a machine that teaches students at the same level as a teacher, and I don't believe that we will for a very long time, if ever, we're not close to that even remotely, you're going to have inefficiencies 
And that's okay. And it makes sense because when we think about efficiency, we're thinking about doing things quickly and cheaply and with fewer resources. So within an education setting, this would mean one student teaching more teachers or one, one teacher teaching more students, excuse me. And <laughs> I mean, that would be the real efficiency, right? To get the students to be the teachers. But that's yeah. not what I intended when I had that little slip up. So Lord of the flies up in there. Jeez. <laughs> And so think about it. Teachers are more effective when they can instruct fewer students. Think about how great it would be if in your schooling you could have five teachers all to yourself and you could have each of them with their expertise take the time to explain things to you and only you. You could work at your own comfortable pace and it wouldn't be efficient to have five teachers teaching one student, but arguably the economic or rather the educational outcomes would be very beneficial for the student. Now, obviously I don't think that we, I'm not advocating for making a five to one teacher to student ratio, well, you know what? I'll advocate for it, but it just will never happen. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the underlying idea is that things like education and healthcare is this way too don't necessarily benefit from becoming more artificially efficient. And so when when charter schools work, it's typically because a concerned group has made a dedicated effort to focus on students. But there are private companies which step in to run charter schools, and those private companies want to make a profit. And there's been research done in this arena. There was a a, a professor at Western Michigan University who determined that the average profit margin for each student in a charter school that is run by a for-profit company is between $2,500 and $3,500 per year. And it makes sense if you're making a product to try to turn a profit because that just means you're making the same product at the same quality more cheaply. But there is almost no scenario where it makes sense to extract profit from the educational process. That $2,500 to $3,500 could go towards hiring more staff, investing in better resources, technology, up-to-date books. In in a system like education, profit really does have a one-to-one detriment to the educational quality that students are receiving. And this is borne out by a number of studies, most recently a Stanford University study, which concluded that in the worst cases, charter school students performed worse across all metrics of economic or rather educational achievement than students in both public and private schools with a couple of notable exceptions. They found, Joe, actually, that the most successful charter schools in the nation are in Wisconsin. Yay. But they're relatively rare. Only 2% of national charter school students are in Wisconsin. 
Yeah, so, like I I know there's a I'm not sure if it's uh, if it's a charter school or a public school, but I know there's one high school around here that you can almost like choose majors for your like junior and senior year of high school. That's something that happens around here, and it's a it's innovative. And I met someone who was part of that. It doesn't seem like it it helped in the long long term, but who know, you know it's still something cool. Yeah, um, it's and different. That, that innovation represents the best of charter schools, and another reason why charter schools are supported by many is because they can often specialize. You can have a charter school for the arts, a charter school for STEM a charter school that focuses on botany. I don't know. The point is that... <laughs> the botanist of the <laughs> charter school. Yeah, maybe you and me can run that, Joe. Maybe Adequately Informed will sponsor a charter school. So, so Evan, what do you know about botany now? Um, not, not anything appreciable. I know nothing. All right. So we're perfect to run it in the... In the uh, in the kind of leftist critique of <laughs> charter schools. But anyway. <laughs> so all of that is to say that when we introduce profit motives into education, the only thing we do is reduce educational quality. And it seems like more and more we're realizing that the vast majority of charter schools are that type of charter school and not the idyllic, well-run, utopian schools that were envisioned when the concept was introduced in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. The only type of school where I could truly envision that profit could actually make something be a good motive for a school to have is a specific technical school on technical knowledge whereas most every other school there you know they there are specific learning paths but there is a more holistic belief in the education you get from you know an elementary school versus a coding academy uh-huh so um, that's that's about the only arena where I can envision profit meaning anything. Highly specific job training, essentially, where there could be competition to um, and actual incentives within a specific industry to create a better product with that. But anyway, that's a that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> but from what I have gathered in my research and thoughts and reading about charter schools is that why do people like them? It seems to be that charter schools offer an opportunity for people whose children or an opportunity for children who are live in a school district that is not living up to par to their expectations and if there is an option of charter school, then that's an avenue that they can go down to ensure better educational opportunities for those specific children, whereas just going with the public school may not work out for them as but well. That's, that's the rub, right? Is that it ensures the potential for a different opportunity for the kids who win the lottery system to get in. 
while yes, at the same yes, time that, that, siphoning the funding through the vouchers away from the public schools that the money could be spent to improve those public schools. Right. So that that like yeah, that was going to be my next point is that at worst, pu- charter schools take away money from the public school system, thereby worsening their ability to teach and instruct the student base, therefore creating more demand for charter schools. Because they, they oftentimes, like if, it, if a place has a very good public education system, there isn't a whole lot of talk of needing charter schools. Mm-hmm. Like if if everything was doing what it needed to do already, no. But well, I'm sure there would be some people, but it wouldn't be taken as credibly to be like, and we need charter schools. So the charter most charter schools come up in areas where there is low. Uh, the public school system is not servicing as well. You know, in low income rural areas, low income urban areas, different groups of people, um, charter schools service. And there is the second part of the question, which is, why aren't we spending more money on schools? And this is an interesting fact because the United States is already spending a ton of money on schools. Out of uh, the top OECD countries, as a share of GDP, the United States ranks fourth in the percent of GDP going to education at 6.1% and Norway is the first with only, you know, not much more at 6.4%. But our country is also, our GDP is way higher than Norway. And I think we're like second just in real dollars spending per student. We spend something like $12,000 per student. And that is way more than the global average or the OECD average of like 5,000 or something. So we are spending a lot of money on education already. Now here's where it really gets into the nitty gritty. That 12,000 is not going to every student every year. The big problem that I see in the American education system is that the main funding device for public education in the United States is property taxes or essentially the value of the neighborhood that you're educating determines how much education they can get. If you live in a poor area, there won't be as much money for education, even if the property taxes are way high. But if you're in a rich area, the, the the property taxes can be very low and still have way more money to educate the kids than the poorest districts would have. Mm-hmm. So there's, there are very few, so school districts in the United States report their funding levels at a per student basis, but almost no school district in the country really lists out the per school spending on education, per class spending on education. Now, that would come down to, you know, if somebody has a new teacher, that would be lower spending per student. If they have a seasoned teacher, that would be more spending per student. But even on a school level, there would be real value in knowing that. Because I have a hunch 
that the richest schools are getting an outsized portion of that, you know, bringing that average up and that poorer schools are way poor and they're not getting as much money. And that's where the discrepancy in why aren't we spending enough? Because as a society, as a society as a whole, we're spending a lot and enough or what should be enough, but it's not getting to everybody equally. Yeah, it's creating a huge inequality that's based on existing inequalities. Like, I look... What, what's a good example? Like, I look at my friends who came from the Chicago suburbs, and their school districts all had so much money. It seems like they have so many programs, they have good teachers, they, they're able to provide for better educational attainment. And then I look at something like Rova, <laughs> uh, a, a unified school district. Do, you know, I don't know if it really has money or not, but oh man, it's just a bunch of farmers, you know, and their kids, and all these small towns that have, you know, drastically s- small property values. Um, you know, go buy a house for twenty, thirty thousand dollars. So they don't have nearly as much money or educational opportunity as someone in the big suburbs. And if we were to, let's say, hypothetically, still fund it by property tax, but take it all to the state level, and then the state distributes that money out to all the edgy, you know, all the schools, that could be something that would would be better. Because if your neighborhood's poor, you're you're not going to have a good school. It's going to be harder to have a good school. You're going to need a lot of outside help. And why aren't we already doing that? Yeah, the idea that property taxes fund education is is pretty baffling to me. It's it's not any other sort of tax. It's it's property tax. And, and I'll, I'll just say it one more time. If your area is poor, you're going to have a hard time educating your kids because you're going to have to tax everybody really high relatively. And that's going to take more money out of their pockets and make the and then the educational outcomes are going to be worse. And that's going to lead to people less able to take on the world and perform economically, which leads to the neighborhood continuing to be poor. It, you know, it's just a self-fulfilling prophecy that makes, you know, keeps areas trapped in poverty and, and low things, educational attainment. Yeah. It's one of those things that on the surface, you know, you glance at it once, it, it sounds fair. Oh, well, communities just pay for their own schools. But then you realize that the people who end up accounting for a district or a neighborhood's inability to pay are children. And with everything that we know about education and status attainment and the links between resources and eventual success in life, it becomes indefensible when you actually play it out in the real world. But I think that the lack of desire to change the system stems from 
a very short-sighted type of greed. I, I thought it was it was so interesting earlier when you said, because I've heard this too, parents who send their kids to private school get upset that they're also paying for the public schools. Or I've also heard people say, uh, well, I don't have kids, so why should I pay for public school? Because that's that's the short-sighted calculus of it. Well, my child is not going there to get educated, so it's a waste of my money. But I think that's such a bad way to think about the societal value of education. Even if your child is not being educated by a school district, you're going to have to interact with people who are educated in this country. And you're going to have to work with these people. These are the people who you're going to be sharing the roads with, the people who are going to be commenting on Facebook posts. Isn't it worthwhile to make sure that all these people, even if they're not your own direct kids, have access to good education? Doesn't that have positive benefits for everyone in society? Isn't that a worthwhile expenditure of tax dollars? I sure think so. It is, but, you know, I, I, with the amount of, like, risk that we put into the hands of every individual American, um, economic risk, you know, you know, you get sick, you, you have a bunch of medical bills, you, you, uh, get an education, you run up debt, you know, but you get a job or, you know, the fear that if you lose your job, then you lose everything. It just creates this greater atmosphere where there is a belief that the world is a zero sum game. If you are, you got to do everything you can to make sure that your kid gets ahead so that they can compete in the world so that they don't get left behind by the runaway capitalist system or whatever the United States is. Now, I'm not against capitalism, but in the current iteration that we have, it just creates a lot of insecurity, which creates anxiety, which creates this feeling that you have to look out for your own kin instead of looking out for the kin, everybody's kin. Because if, if, uh, if you don't fight for just your kid, then there's a chance they'll fall behind. We could create a system where everybody is more likely to not fall behind, but that would require and possibly even tease out a possibility that your kid in the near term in the current system won't get adequately ahead. It's the prisoner's dilemma, right? If you both agree to do the pro-social thing, you'll be okay. But the fear exists that the other person is going to sell you down the river and your kid will fall behind because of it. Yeah. It and just, I think in the current age, there's so much anxiety along, among new parents about trying to make sure they, you know, they do the best by their kid. And boy, it just sounds exhausting. Yeah, it's been said that and studies have come out about this, how working parents today spend more hours a day actively parenting than stay at home parents 50 years ago. There's a huge yeah. burden placed on parents and parenting. 
Yeah, just uh, a real belief that you got to do everything possible to help make sure your kid gets ahead, which is a noble goal. But I I would hope that we could someday you know, create a better society where we can just have a little bit more faith that our children are in good hands, mm-hmm. that we don't have to be paranoid that they're not going to be able to get ahead. Or, I mean, not even be able to get ahead, just be able to live a good life. This is a man like this was going to be my individual topic. But both Evan and I read this article on The New York Times about um, the capitalist system in Finland. And they really believe in capitalism. They do everything that and the way they believe in it is that they believe in giving people as equal opportunity as possible making sure the bare necessities of life are taken care of so that they can have the best people are best able to um, work within the capitalist society as possible to be the best workers that they can. And part of that is making sure that everyone has a good education and Finnish education is the best in the world, at least K through 12. It's, it's, it's second to none. They do it the best. And I believe that we are we 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 already spend more money than they do on education. We just have to figure out how to make it better equal and use it more efficiently, which is, you know, good government. I'm I'm all I'm all for all good government. <laughs> yeah, the question of distribution becomes critical yeah because or uh what was it i i heard this piece about um it was like in vermont years ago they did a big shake-up where they actually moved to a model where um the you know the taxes go to the state and then there's a redistribution of uh, the in you know the the property taxes you know it was exemplified in a case of a rural school district that didn't have much economic development and because of that their school suffered whereas you know just a few miles up the road there was like a ski resort town that you know because it was a ski resort town and people wanted to be there and people wanted to buy the houses to go live you know have the winter home at the ski resort property values were high so the people there could be taxed at a much lower rate and get more money for education than the poor rural economically undeveloped area could get it also leads to other trade-offs in education but the first is like we talk a lot in the united states about believing in equal opportunity but I've said this before on this podcast that it the way it works out is an expression of some bare minimum of opportunity. We don't seem to actually believe in actual equal opportunity. We just believe, oh, well, if we provide some public education, then that will just be good enough. We need to provide an education system that gives people great uh a good education no matter where they live or no matter how rich or poor their neighborhood is yeah it's the fundamental 
benchmark of how we are able to determine economic winners and losers into the future is what type of education we give people of different backgrounds. And right now, and I think now so acceleratingly so since the 1980s, we're seeing this bifurcation between the people who can have the big Finland-style expenditures on their education and those that are stuck with mold and rats in their schools and 15-year-old textbooks. And... Yeah, 30, 30 kid class sizes. and Yeah. And I guess that would be okay. It wouldn't be okay, but I guess that would be okay if we didn't have the same people perpetuating the system saying... Well, we do have that equality of opportunity. It's America, so blanket statement, everybody can make it just because. Yeah. And we have to like it's frustrating. It's one thing to say you believe in an ideal and another to continuously work at it. You know, the 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 ideal that's supposed to absolve the United States from all its sins is that we're continuously working towards being better. And we can't just believe that we're continuously working to always be better. We have to actually do the work of continuously trying to always be better. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. that there's become a cop-out to just sort of hide behind American mythos. And it, it, doesn't, it doesn't hold up when we actually evaluate these policies. So I, we, I will. The way that we structure our society, it's not consistent yeah. with our professed values. Like at you know, especially with education funding, both the liberal and the conservative critique are both right. It's like we're not spending enough on education, and we're already spending more money than every you know almost every other country in the world on education. It's this that we're not spending that money evenly. So mm -hmm. the lows are lower, the highs are higher, and the disparity is greater. Because quite frankly, the the top, you know, the the top, you know, like 10% of American schools, you know, and universities are way better than any top 10% in any other country. Uh-huh. But our lows are way lower than the other countries. <laughs> in the top educational attainment uh, countries. And that's that's what drags us down. You know, you got like the UN going into rural uh, Mississippi and finding abject poverty that's been all but eradicated in all other advanced uh, economies. It's just the highs are high, the lows are lows, the inequality gets to the folk and creates like inequality of outcomes today creates inequality of outcomes tomorrow and because of creating inequality of opportunity today yes so that's the cycle so that's that's why we don't spend more on schools <laughs> if you yeah. want more spending on your school district um, petition your school board to 
call for a referendum to increase property taxes in your area and see how far that goes. <laughs> Not to be smart, but it, oh boy, you're in for a battle if you want to do that. Oh man. Not not the happiest subject we've covered here on Adequately Informed. No. It's adequately sad. Aww. But there's the optimism that we can do better. We just have to try to do better. <laughs> yeah. So, I think that gets us to an end segment... What's uh what's an end segment, Evan? What's ours today? It's going to be political potpourri. We're going to talk about potent some, potpourri. Uh, yeah, we're going to well, talk potent about potent potables. <laughs> yeah, we're on Jeopardy. This is now Jeopardy. It's it Yeah, we're going to talk about um some activists, some politicians. Also, I I want to I want to do a pitch. Joe, let me do my pitch at the end. Do a, do a pitch. Okay. Oh, later? I'll do it now. Everyone, would you consider subscribing to a free reading list from Adequately Informed that sums up some of the articles and videos that we are using to keep ourselves adequately informed? If so, please drop a comment or email. If not, also drop a comment or email. want to see if this is something that's worth investing our time into. We like comments and emails. We do across all. Thank you to a, a very strong response from Blake A this week, as well as John C through Facebook. And we will let's, let's jump into that now. We're going to touch on our segment last week, which drew a lot of response. The main segment on Pete Buttigieg. We've had people chiming in both for and against him and it has been very interesting to see how polarized the reactions to one person can be. He's a polarizing figure. He is, and you wouldn't expect that. When I first heard, oh, there's a charming mayor who's running for president, I, I didn't think he would end up being the wedge candidate within this field. He says some things that people like me really like, and... I'm willing to put up with a little bit more Machiavellian, a little slime, a little, you know, a little uh, shape-shifting to achieve a goal. And then other people, it turns them way the fuck off. So we also so. had a request to revisit our power rankings. So I'm going to go ahead and read mine, and Joe can share his if he chooses. He has free will. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, thanks for uh, giving me that space, Evan. <laughs> It's great to have you on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so this is updated to reflect the, the last group of people who have dropped. It was updated on Monday. Number 15, Deval Patrick, because why is he here? Number 14, John Delaney. <laughs> Man, the big, the big Deval Patrick surge. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been not real. Coming. It's not coming. <laughs> Number 14, John Delaney, because we've never liked him, and he, he he's very disingenuous as well. Be best, best take on John Delaney is that he seems like the type of guy who takes over a struggling pencil-making op operation by 
making strategic cuts to staffing and whittling down the quality of the product to turn the pencil company profitable. Yeah, seems fair. Number 13, Marianne Williamson, because what what has she said? That's her, 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 her campaign just has to be a scam. It, it's a grift. It has to be a grift. It seems that seems likely. Number 12, Michael Bennett, who complains about how nobody wants to listen to him. But then wait, whenever, he's still in this. He's, he's I thought still he left. Let's let me double check so that I don't look like a dumbass. Well, I haven't heard anything the last few weeks, but I guess I haven't heard anything the last few months. Hey, he's still in. He's active on his active roster. He sounds like a Muppet, though. Let's agree. He he kind of sounds like 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 if someone ran Kermit the Frog through a washing machine and it distorted his vocal cords so that it doesn't sound like Kermit anymore, but definitely not a human. Um, and if that's the best thing you got going for you, you're not going to not going to gain traction. You see, just the name Michael Bennett sounds like a character out of a Sorkin TV show. D- does like, it? Like, to me it does. But, guess, let's move on. So 10 and 11 I'm going to lump together because Tom Steyer and Michael Bloomberg are the billionaires who are just buying their way into the polling and really Man, don't Steyer- have support from me. Steyer missed his opportunity. You know, he was pushing that impeachment stuff before, and then it comes, and then he's like, I'm running for president. Yeah, now he's all off over in the other part of the world, not not being able yeah. to capitalize on that. Sorry, buddy. Yeah. Number nine, Amy Klobuchar. Um, yeah, she just... Yeah. She's, <laughs> she's really trying to stake out that moderate lane, and I just get so frustrated watching her at the debate every time because Elizabeth Warren will explain exactly how she's going to pay for something. She will go into specifics on her wealth tax and then it'll cut to Amy Klobuchar who will say, but how are you going to pay for it? Like she's not listening at all. And, uh, you know, every, every make- time she opens her mouth, she annoys me and I'm not not here for it. It, it may be I may be making this connection because Amy Klobuchar was portrayed uh, by uh, what is her name? Drash? Drash? Ra- on, Rachel Drash. Yeah, Rachel Drash on SNL. Amy Klobuchar also reminds me of another Drash character. Um, oh, Debbie Downer. <laughs> Just, <laughs> it does. That's fair. Anyone, anyone says anything great, and then Amy Klobuchar is like, "But no." Womp so. womp. Yeah. So then number eight is Mayor Pete. I'm uh, still not enthused. Number seven, Tulsi Gabbard. Ah, but are you methused? No. Nobody knows yeah. what it means. <laughs> um, so Gabbard? Yeah. Said? She's got a lot of weaknesses, but in general, I appreciate that there's a candidate out there who's just saying, our, you know, our baseline is going to be no wars and we'll go from there. <laughs> the 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 extreme conclusion to the liberal critique of the 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 W years, <laughs> but you know what? She's uh, got got military experience. As with Pete, I trust her on military stuff, and you know, not not going to vote for her. But there are, there are worse candidates, as I've just explained. 
Not really explained, but listed. I'm more of a list guy. Number six, Cory Booker. He's fine. I mean, he seems to have... <laughs> Isn't that the ultimate take on him? He's fine. That, mean... is the, that is the ultimate take on Cory Booker. He's fine. There's nothing like, that he advocates for that someone more charismatic isn't also advocating for. There's nothing wrong with him, but by the nature of that, that almost makes it hard to say that there's something innately right about him. Yeah. It's just, you know, he's he's milk toast, but not too bad. <laughs> just... He's there. He's all right. No no big thoughts or feelings either way. Yep. Number five, Julian Castro. He's basically running for vice president, but I like I like all the things he says. He's a very polished presenter, and he, he could make some big moves as vice president. He's not going to win. I do like the cut of his jib. Yeah, whatever, you know, cut it out. I did, I did see... A nice, uh, funny Twitter thread that was like, well, we all have the take that the presidency ages you more than normal. So we need to elect Julian Julian Castro and compare his aging to that of his identical twin. Yeah. See how he differs (laughs) from Joaquin. That's persuasive to me. That for science, guys. Yeah. Number four, Joe Biden. He's... He's like the safety school. You don't really want to go there, but you know that you'll at least get out in four years and you, you know, a catastrophe will most likely be averted. You'll be close to home. It's 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 not someone that I really have a lot of praise for, but the electability, I guess, boosts him up to the top four. Number three, Andrew Yang, UBI. Number two, Elizabeth Warren, because she's good. She'd be a good president. And number one, Bernie Sanders, because he'd be a good president. And he's a little bit more progressive on some issues that matter a lot to me than Warren. Hmm. There you go. There's the ranking. And Joe says Elizabeth Warren. And then, I don't know. I still like Pete. I don't do lists. (laughs) They know you've done lists on this podcast. You can't hide from them. Well, just because I've done them doesn't mean I like them. Or that, like, I have to think about that. I didn't think about this. This got sprung on me. That is true. I, I I turned a page on my notes expecting there to be some list, and it's just a blank page. So (laughs) if that's... You like Warren? um, That's good. I I think she'd be the best candidate. And then everybody else, there's kind of a middling tier. Still really don't want Joe Biden. I feel like that would just be really squandering this moment um, that we have. Especially, you know, this this past week, he's been saying talking about trying or murmurs that he's thinking about doing a one term pledge, um, which just doesn't make sense to me. Like, if you're going to do it, do it <laughs> like not a fan of the James full K. Term. Polk. What was that? You're not a fan of James K. Polk. You know, 
Maybe it was a different time, but uh, you know, it's just everything in our politics currently is so not in the present and so future oriented that it, it's weird to come in as a lame duck. Like it already seems like the conservative, you know, both parties kind of work on, on the ideal that, oh, well, we could just kind of wait this out. <laughs> We can wait this out until we come back to power and and with Joe Biden's brand of thinking we could just all get along and it'll all just work. Yeah, just it just sounds like four years of frustration. Four years of frustration. That that'll be the memoir. And the thing <laughs> no is, malarkey. The thing is, though, four years of frustration could be the memoir about any four-year period in history. And and the end-end segment, Greta Thunberg, climate activist, was named Time's Person of the Year. Yeah. And we uh, wanted to take this opportunity to say that we know we haven't talked about climate change. We will. We'll get it. We'll figure it out. We're not, we're not climate change deniers. It's very important. Existential threat. Oh, wait. And- we're not? <laughs> Oh man, we didn't we didn't discuss this. We gotta we gotta figure this out real quick. Yeah, I was. Are we? Uh, oh, I was are just we? I was just I was just trying to never talk about it. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> good work, good work. A kiddo, um, Donald Trump says she needs to work on her anger management, which is pretty rich, isn't it? It's just sad. It, it's just like. This is a thing. I mean, I'm not surprised that it's a thing, but I just wish that it wasn't. <laughs> I would like it to stop. Can we have it all stop? You know, when the when the Republicans in the impeachment hearings are just like, the Democrats just hate Donald Trump. And it's like, yeah, we fucking do. <laughs> but for a reason. Yeah, for reasons. So I think that wraps up this episode of Adequately Informed. I'd like to thank Anthony Hish for the music. We'd like to thank you guys for listening. If you make it this far, put 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 a hand up in the air and wave it like you don't care and now you're you look like an idiot. But you're our idiot. What do you you got anything you want to say, Evan? Thank you to Rudy Raymore. Alright. And After all of that, we hope that you've been adequately informed.